The following podcast contains advertisements. If you prefer a podcast without advertisements, you can sign up for our ad-free version at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. You'll get rid of the ads and we'll be very grateful. We cannot try to challenge terrorism without looking at the history of abuses that have been committed in the name of doing so. I've already seen that take place in the physical world, and I've seen it take place from a surveillance perspective, and I cannot abide that taking place in the content moderation world. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, May 20th, 2021. Today, we're bringing you another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information ecosystem. In March 2019, a shooter carried out two mass killings at mosques in Christchurch, New Zealand, live-streaming the first shooting on Facebook. Two months later, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and French President Emmanuel Macron convened the Christchurch Call, a commitment joined by both governments and technology companies to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content online. It's now been two years since the Christchurch call. To discuss those years and what comes next, Evelyn Duick and I spoke with Dia Kayali, who serves as a co-chair of the advisory network to the Christchurch call, a group of civil society organizations that work to ensure that the signatories to the call consider a more diverse range of expertise and perspectives. Dia is a longtime digital rights activist and the associate director for advocacy at Mnemonic, an organization that works to preserve online documentation of human rights abuses. So what has their experience been like as a voice for civil society in these conversations around the call? What should we make of the recent decision by the Biden administration to sign the United States on to the Christchurch call? And what are the risks of potentially over-aggressive moderation in an effort to take down terrorist content? It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 20th, the Christchurch Call, two years on. Dia, thank you so much for coming on. This is really the perfect time to talk to you, uh, given that it was the two-year anniversary of the Christchurch Call last week, and the U.S. announced a few weeks ago that it would be joining the call. As an initial matter, would you mind giving our listeners a refresher on what exactly the call is and how it came about? Sure. Yeah. So the Christchurch call, the full name is the Christchurch call to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content online. And this is a policy initiative that came after the March 15, 2019 mosque attacks in Christchurch, New Zealand, where 51 people were killed, 50 injured, and there was a live stream of the entire event. And that live stream was viewed almost 4,000 times before it was removed from the internet. So a few months later, Jacinda Ardern, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern and President Macron came together in Paris and they announced the Christchurch call. So this is a policy initiative that has government and company signatories. And as mentioned, the goal is the broad goal is to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content online. And then there's a number of specific provisions in the language that we can get into. Yeah, so absolutely. We'll be digging into all of that, but that's a very helpful sort of framing. And so to sort of continuing situating ourselves, you are one of the co-chairs of the Christchurch Call Advisory Network, which sounds very fancy. So can you tell us what the advisory network is and what your role within that is and how, how the network came about? Sure. So the the way that the network came about, I think, is a, a really good place to start. So as I mentioned, the Christchurch call was issued on May 15th, 2019. So this was a few months after the event. And this was a, a big event that happened in Paris. There was a forum where France and New Zealand announced the, the initiative. And uh, what happened is just a few days before that, civil society kind of got got wind of what was happening and started scrambling to get together actually looking at a, a leaked copy of the, the policy as it was being worked out on the government side. And we scrambled and came together and wrote a civil society response to what we saw in the Christchurch call as, as we were able to understand it. So it became really, really clear right away that civil society shouldn't be needing to scramble to provide feedback on something that is you know potentially going to be a multi-stakeholder 
policy initiative that that could have a lot of influence. So the Christchurch Call Advisory Network formed a few months later over the summer after after the Christchurch call was announced. Uh, but it was really the same people. And it's been a lot of the same people from the beginning who saw that initial policy, who shared their concerns, who, who wrote down their concerns. There was also some civil society at that initial summit. And then several months later, there was a leaders dialogue associated with the, the UN General Assembly. So many of us, and that was when the advisory network was officially formed. So uh, it was in August of 2019, many months after. And and we've been around since then. We've formalized ourselves. It was the New Zealand government saying, great, you know, we want an advisory network, so let's form one. Here are the members. And, and we just took it and ran with it. And we've really created a group of people that have an incredible wealth of knowledge. And of course, advisory network, it sounds self-explanatory. We should be advising on policy initiatives related to the Christchurch call. But again, as I expect we'll get into in this conversation today, what, what has happened is that we've really carved out a space for ourselves and, and pushed as to where we think we should be providing advice and consultation. And I think we're going to see some improvement going forward, especially after this event. And I can, I can say a little bit about that later. Yeah, so we will get into all of that. But let's start with the positives and the positive framing and sort of how maybe the governments were talking about this last week at the two-year summit. So if I asked New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, who was really spearheading the initiative and at the forefront of it, to describe the Christchurch call and how it's taken shape and progressed over the past two years, what would she say? And like, what did she say last week at the summit? Well, I should I should preface my answer by saying I would agree with a lot of how she would frame it. And and so I think what she would say and what she did say is the Christchurch call is really a new way to try to address an incredibly difficult problem. Terrorist and violent extremist content online is something that uh, a lot of people are concerned about. It's not just an issue that policymakers have taken up and focused on. It's something that that everyday people are talking about and concerned about. We know that that terrorism and violent extremism are very complex problems that have deep societal roots that travel across borders. They're not restricted to borders and they require solutions from policymakers in government, but also in companies and in civil society. So we need input from civil society as well. So it's a complex problem. It needs everybody to solve it. And the Christchurch call is really trying to create a forum where those people can come together in a trusted environment, uh, in a new way to have conversations with every stakeholder at the table to try to come up with some real solutions. What are civil society concerns with the call and how has the advisory network been finding the sort of engagement from government and companies? And are you more optimistic about how this engagement will be going forward from the the place where you started, where you kind of had to beat down the door? Yeah. So let me uh, let me answer those one at a time, starting with the, the civil society concerns. I think they're also very related to what is going to happen moving forward. So the advisory network, we got together and we created our terms of reference completely independently and then shared them with the government for approval. So we have terms of reference that we created. And, and in our terms of reference, we're focusing on two aspects that we really want to ensure are part of the discussion, and that's human rights and a free, open and secure Internet. So we're bringing a lot of that perspective to the discussion. So we want to make sure that it's a part of it. And a lot of the concerns that we've brought up with the Christchurch call would go to those issues. So, for example, a concern, and this is something that was featured as part of the summit, is the use of algorithms, and less so at the summit, but sort of implied in that is the use of machine learning and automation for content moderation. As I mentioned, you know, the full title of the call, we oftentimes just say Christchurch call, but it's Christchurch call to eliminate terrorist and violent extremist content. And elimination of any type of content, particularly using machine learning, and automation is going to result in a lot of false positives. So just over-removal of content, particularly uh, coming from the mnemonic perspective, human rights documentation is absolutely getting swept up in this. This is a concern, and if the Christchurch call wants to use that type of, of technology to carry out its goals, you know that's where civil society needs to step in and say, hey, here's what we already know about how this technology works. Here's what civil society has seen. Here's how we've seen these takedowns work. So that's that's a big part of what we're bringing to the table is just content moderation expertise 
expertise around human rights, and as I mentioned, particularly technical expertise as well. So ensuring that solutions are not breaking encryption, are not damaging the structure of the internet, and, and bringing that technical expertise as well. I think, as, as I mentioned, we also have in the, the network expertise around countering violent extremism, alternative methods, de-radicalization. So uh, we also have people who have been directly impacted by terrorists and violent extremism, people who have a personal relationship to the Christchurch attack. So making sure that that perspective is part of it. You know, a lot of times these conversations become hypothetical and it's easy to say, well, you know, if you're taking down a hundred pieces of content, you have to make sure that, that you're really accurate, but that one piece of content might be the Christchurch video. So we do really want to take that seriously. We're really trying to bring both sides of the seriousness of the, of the situation that we do take terrorist and violent extremist content seriously, but also we take free expression and a free, open and secure internet seriously. And then, and then one point that I've made a lot that, that the, the advisory network has brought up that feels a little bit insurmountable is this issue of the definition. So I keep saying terrorist and violent extremist content, and I'd like the listeners out there to think of quotation marks every time I say it because there is not actually an agreed upon definition of terrorism or violent extremism. And when I say not agreed upon, you know, when you look at the groups that were at the summit on Friday, we had the US, we had different members of the EU, we had Colombia, we had Jordan. So all of these different countries have their own definition of terrorism. They have their own internal lists of groups that they've designated as terrorist groups. And there's not going to be agreement. Another one of the participatories at the meeting on Friday was Canada. Canada has actually designated white supremacist groups as terrorist groups. White supremacist groups, maybe like the ones that could have helped inspire the Christchurch shooter. But the U.S. doesn't have any of those groups on a list. There's one, one group in the U.S. that's designated the Russian imperial movement, and that's still a foreign terrorist organization. So this definitional issue is a huge issue, and it's one that I think the Christchurch call knows is a problem, but hasn't even started to touch. I know we're going to talk about the Global Internet Forum to counter terrorism later. That's a big, I think, a big issue for GIFCT as well, for all of this work. Like, what are we actually talking about? You know, and it makes the conversations a little bit weird because you know that the person sitting across the table from you maybe has a completely different definition. Are we talking about white supremacist content or are we just talking about Al-Qaeda and the Islamic State, you know, there's there's really a, a lack of agreement there. And I really hope that over the next year, this is a big part of the, the discussions around the Christchurch call. So I sort of want to just stay for a little bit longer on the on the summit itself. One of the things that was really striking about it was that uh, civil society contributions were really sort of centered by the governments and seen as really important and, and part of legitimating the process. But as you mentioned, civil society wasn't really included from the start. And so I, I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why you think civil society is so important here, but also what it's like to be in those rooms and Zoom calls when they're not being broadcast around the world in, in live time. So I can imagine, for example, that your resources are a little bit more spare than governments and tech companies, but your job is to represent disempowered voices and, and marginalized views that often don't get enough attention. And so how does that dynamic play out and, and, and what is it like to be trying to do this kind of engagement? Well, I will say first and foremost, the way that dynamic plays out is I do not get very much sleep. You know, I, I, I don't know what the preparation for the summit was like for other stakeholders, but I'll say that for me, I think I think last week I probably worked about 80 hours. I really didn't sleep. So it's just it's a ton of energy and it's it's frankly a lot of time outside of my normal work week. I am the Christchurch call is one of many things that I'm working on. Last week, I was dealing with a surge in content removal from Palestine that is still going on this week that is absolutely crisis level in terms of human rights documentation and content moderation and is also related to the work of the Christchurch call. It's part of the reason why it's getting taken down is if people you know, dare to refer to Hamas, even if it's negatively, their content will get taken down. So at the same time as I was trying to prepare for this event, talking about hypotheticals, something real world was happening that was really serious and also, you know, uh, of personal interest to me as, as a Syrian American. So it's just, it, it's an incredible amount of time 
And I feel very much like I have to work twice as hard to get to the same place as, as other stakeholders in this conversation. And I think that that feeling is widely shared by civil society. I think a lot of us who want to do this work end up putting in extra hours, you know, stretching our resources, stretching our time as much as possible to, to be able to engage. So that being said, you know, the event was very interesting. I think we didn't really, to be honest, we didn't have a full idea of how much civil society voices were really going to be centered. As the event was was going forward, I, I, I was really pleasantly surprised to hear our voice so front and center. And I think in a, in a real way, we were really able to respond. There were definitely some comments made at the event that brought up some of the concerns that civil society has and not even necessarily by design, but just because of the order of the speakers, I was really, really pleasantly surprised to see us able to respond to, you know, proposals, for example, that, that could, could be detrimental to human rights. We were able to respond and say, you know, this is, this is what we see as the priorities. This is how you center human rights. This is how you center a civil society voice. And we actually said in our comments, we were able to say a lot of practical steps for what we think civil society engagement should look like. So I think that was just just a very positive shift. And I'm not I'm not sure what is going to happen next. You know, that's where that's where the rubber hits the road is is seeing what really happens after hearing some of these really positive comments and hearing the civil society role really touted so much in the event. You know, what happens next I think is anybody's guess. But it was it was just a, it was a very interesting experience i will say you know we were we were given an equal place at the table next to heads of state so i just over the next year i just really want to keep that momentum going one thing that i see as a positive shift is that we've actually got funding for a secretariat for the advisory network so we're going to have a staff person over the next year and then we hope to secure permanent funding. And so that's, I think that's going to make a significant difference in terms of our ability to just keep up with everything and do our own internal organizing. One other thing that really stuck out from the community work plan is that we're going to have an accountability process. This is something that civil society has been asking for. And I don't know exactly how it's going to shape out. And obviously, there's going to be a lot of political wrangling. But the goal of such a process is to allow any member of the call community to ask another member of the call community to explain their actions and, and how they relate to the call commitments. So, for example, as civil society, over the last year, we did see some of the signatories to the call pass legislation that is detrimental to human rights and detrimental to a free, open and secure Internet. So if we'd already had such a process in place before the European terrorist content online regulation had passed, I would ask signatories to the call that that have really supported that legislation. I would ask them to explain how that relates to the call commitments and they would they would have to give me a response. Now, beyond that, I don't know what this process is going to look like. And believe me, even getting that, there are government members who really, <laughs> and company members who I think are, 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 are like, really, you, you want to put me in a process where I'm required to answer a question from civil society in a way that all the other members of the community can see my answer. But to me, I think that that is a good move. It's, it's a positive direction. Because we can't, we can't just have civil society a part of this conversation and say, great, we consulted with civil society, and then we don't have any way to push for accountability. So this is a step in the right direction to require some of that. Also in the community work plan, we had a lot about information sharing and trying to get a more of an even playing field for civil society to understand what are the different conversations that are going on. I mean, we know for a fact, of course, Governments are having their own conversations about companies, but it is really not appropriate for a government that's a signatory to the Christchurch call to be talking about some policy initiative that is meant to carry out the Christchurch call commitments without civil society even knowing about it. So I'm optimistic about what's going to happen in the next year in the same way, frankly, that I sometimes feel optimistic about the Facebook Oversight Board, if the only thing that happens over the next year is that it becomes clear when we have our three-year anniversary where human rights and a free, open, and secure internet have potentially been harmed by initiatives focusing on the Christchurch call, if that's all we get out of it and we're not even able to make those initiatives better, that's something. So... As we mentioned at the start, the U.S. only joined the call a few weeks ago, and 
the Trump administration had initially refused to join, uh, citing First Amendment concerns. And you also noted that there's sort of this interesting question of what the U.S.'s relationship with the call was, given that a lot of the terrorism that is of concern is actually coming from the U.S. and the other countries are now designating U.S. groups. So I want to talk about the the Biden administration's change in heart. But first off, what did you make of the Trump administration's decision at the time? Is there anything to those concerns about the call limiting speech? Well, as I as I mentioned earlier, absolutely the increased use of automation to detect poorly defined terrorist and violent extremist content can absolutely have a negative impact on free expression or since we're talking about the U.S., free speech. <laughs> um, so absolutely. I, I think that there is something to those concerns. But just like everything else we saw from the Trump administration related to content moderation and social media, you know, it, it was an overstatement. It was it was the Trump administration's way of saying, you know, I'm going to I'm going to have a wink and a nod to my conservative friends or, frankly, my far right and white supremacist friends by saying, don't worry, your speech is still protected under the First Amendment and I would never do anything to harm that. And I don't think anything needs to change. So, yes, there are concerns. And I think that having the U.S. a part of this discussion can be positive as a counterweight. You know, the U.S. has some of the the broadest speech protections in the world, and they're very different. They're so different from from the EU and the rest of the world. So I think it's a great counterweight to have in a multi-stakeholder discussion to have the U.S. and, And I'm 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 pleased to have that perspective. But I think I think the the Biden administration's decision to join just makes it really really clear because they said also in their announcement, we are upholding free speech. This is still this is something we're going to bring to this discussion. So I I I I was really pleased to see the announcement. Yeah, and I th- I think you know, the Trump administration's refusal to join while perhaps could be disingenuous at the time, or, you know, their reasons for it might have been disingenuous. It's actually not completely out of step with how the US has treated international agreements relating to speech historically. You know, it famously has a reservation to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 19, to the extent that it would clash with the First Amendment. And the Biden administration also mentioned that it would not take steps that would violate freedom of speech in joining the Christchurch call. So it's it's not completely out of step with those concerns, uh, which are very real for, for all of the reasons that you mentioned. So let's talk a little bit then. Let's move to these sort of where the rubber hits the road and how all of this stuff is actually operationalized and how the Christchurch call is, is put into practice. So one of the centerpieces of it, as we flagged earlier, is this Global Internet Forum for Countering Terrorism, or the fantastic acronym GIFCT. We've talked about the GIFCT on this podcast before with Emma Lanzo of the Centre for Democracy and Technology and Nick Rasmussen, who is the executive director of it. Um, And listeners should definitely go back and check out those episodes if they want a deep dive. But Dia, maybe you can sort of give us an overview of the GIFCT now and what role it plays in sort of operationalizing the Christchurch call. Okay, so just just to contextualize this, I'll I'll give you the the very high level overview of GIFCT, which is that it started as just a hash sharing database of terrorist and violent extremist content from the four biggest platforms. So it was started by Twitter, Facebook, Google, Microsoft to share hashed content. So videos that and 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 pictures that they had found that they created a hash out of, they shared that and it helped them take content down as rapidly as possible. So that was back in 2017. And so GIFCT has been around for a while, mainly for that function to share these hashes and enable more rapid takedown. There have not really been rules around how companies share that content, how they're supposed to use the hash database. And I guess I should say very quickly, the hash database is just you take that content, you turn it into a hash. So it's not the actual content. It's a hash that you can correlate with the content. Platforms use that, compare it against the, the platform, the content that's on their platforms. And maybe they're just using it to flag content. Maybe they're using it to take content down. We're really not clear. So GIFCT started as a, as a company a company initiative. And just last year, it became an independent NGO. And this was very much related to the Christchurch call. It became really clear that GIFCT was the place where the, the goals of the Christchurch call, some of them would be carried out. 
And, and so GIFCT is now an independent organization. As you mentioned, it has an executive director. This all happened last summer. And since then, GIFCT has really been working in parallel with the Christchurch call, or not even quite in parallel. It's really been the place where these things have been happening. Um, so the increased information sharing, there's a, a was specifically an incident protocol created for incidents like the Christchurch shooting. So where there is an incident where a perpetrator or an accomplice is live streaming an attack, the companies came together and through GIFCT, they now have a protocol of how they handle that and, and you know, provides a way for governments more easily to interface with them. Um, and they have used that incident protocol a few times. So, for example, they used it during a live stream shooting in Halle, Germany, very shortly after they created the protocol. So the, so the GIFCT industry association, now independent NGO, also multi-stakeholder, GIFCT also has these working groups that are focused on specific topics. So there's, for example, a legal frameworks working group, a transparency working group. And again, there's really significant overlap between these working groups, what they're focused on, and what needs to happen for the Christchurch call to actually be carried out. So one of the ironies of GIFCT is that it's sort of mandate and centrality in the world of, of tech governance, as you mentioned, really greatly expanded as a result of the Christchurch call. And of course, that attack was by a right-wing extremist. On the other hand, the GIFCT database includes hashes of content that's related to organizations on the UNSC consolidated sanctions list, which focuses on Islamist extremism and not right-wing extremism. On the other hand, you know, there's the difficulty, as you kind of touched on, of, well, if we want to expand beyond that existing list, which is very skewed in one particular direction, we end up in, with this enormous question of how on earth are we going to define what constitutes terrorism? There's this question of designating groups within the U.S. by countries outside the U.S., so it's really a, a puzzle. And it's also not even clear that, you know, tech companies should be making these calls about what constitutes terrorism. How how do you think through that problem? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say first and foremost, tech companies should not be making the decision. I think I think that's clear. I think that if if, if we come to any sort of agreement, if within the structure of the Christchurch call and the signatories to the Christchurch call and the community we come to any sort of agreement about what constitutes terrorist and violent extremist content for the purposes of the Christchurch call. I, I don't, it, it certainly cannot only come from companies. You know, I think that there's been a lot of attention lately on how, how companies make these decisions. I cannot wait to see what happens with Facebook's response to the oversight board. The oversight board has been very focused on this, on, on what is, who is on Facebook's dangerous organizations list. How does Facebook use the dangerous organizations list? I mean, if if uh, if a user just mentions someone who's on the dangerous organizations list, even if it's counter speech, does their content then get taken down? So there's there's are there's tons of opacity, and it's already having very very real world consequences. This is really at the heart, actually, of what Mnemonic does. So Syrian Archive, Yemeni Archive, Sudanese Archive. At the heart of our work, we we are archiving this content and and seeing it get deleted very very rapidly. So tech companies cannot make the decision. It has to be, I think, a, a big open conversation. And we have to be thinking of the negative externalities. And I, I think definitions, there's been a suggestion, and I'm not an expert in this area, but there has been a suggestion to try to make definitions that are much more focused on behavior. Um, so right now, it's we have the lists, we have different loose definitions of what is terrorism, but trying to make more behavior-focused definitions is, is one possibility. And again, as I said, always thinking of the negative externalities. I mean, I'm very, very aware when I think about the U.S. making domestic lists, there's no question to me. Absolutely. If the U.S. were able to designate the Proud Boys as a terrorist group, there's no question that they would be designating also, for example, what they perceive of as far left groups as terrorist organizations. So if Proud Boys are able to be designated, I, I suspect that the U.S. government maybe not under the Biden administration, but I'm not very hopeful, would designate, you know, anti-fascists as some sort of terrorist organization. So we have to be very, very careful about trying to expand definitions. 
especially in concert with everything happening in the world right now around law enforcement. I, I, I'm very, very hesitant about expanding law enforcement's role. And when we expand definitions, we're probably also expanding law enforcement's role in this work. So I think it just needs to be a big, open, public discussion. And maybe there's not an answer, but we haven't even tried yet. You know, we haven't even gotten there. We all either acknowledge it's a problem and say somebody else is going to deal with it, or we just pretend that it's not a problem. So, you know, the, the summit on Friday, we just, we had this, we had this summit and I think there was a lot of really good things said, but the fact is every person in that room may have had a different definition of terrorism and violent extremism. So I just think it's, it's a discussion that needs to be had and it needs to be had as soon as possible, i.e. now, because we can't continue with this work in a really meaningful way without at least outlining the problem, even if we can't come to a common agreement. Yeah, and I think it's it's also really important to underline, you know, the that pesky First Amendment, um, <laughs> as we like to say, is, you know, actually protecting both the left wing and the right wing groups here, right? I mean, there's a lot of conversation in the U.S. right now about how on earth are uh, law enforcement and intelligence agencies going to combat right wing extremism while respecting the First Amendment and that however many problems that causes uh, elsewhere in the world in terms of uh, U.S. engagement in these kinds of organizations, it does mean that it, at the very least, we don't have to be worried about, you know, designating an Antifa as a terrorist organization or, or something like that. Yeah. And I mean, I think this basically is just another manifestation of the tension in debates around content moderation everywhere, not just on this specific issue, which is that it feels deeply uncomfortable and problematic for tech companies to be making these determinations. As you said, Dia, it just like doesn't feel right or make sense. But at the same time, we have very good reasons to be nervous about governments coming in and making these determinations within their own jurisdictions, let alone around the the globe where they're absolutely not going to agree. And, you know, one government's definition of a terrorist is another government's definition of a freedom fighter. But I think your point about the fact that we haven't even really tried is is super important and that having a more public conversation around this rather than just sort of it happening behind the scenes, covered up with these very sort of vague calls in general is really important. But I want to play sort of devil's advocate on this. And a, and a common view about this whole thing might go something like this. Terrorist content online is a very urgent problem. We saw how ISIS weaponized the internet to recruit and spread propaganda and the terrible toll of all of that. The horror of the Christchurch massacre live stream is something that should never happen again. And if there's a little bit of overbroad enforcement and takedown by tech companies in achieving the goal of making sure that those set of problems go away, that that's a reasonable price to pay. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the costs of that view, um, maybe talk about your work with the Syrian archive, which is one of the perhaps most famous examples of how this can go terribly wrong. Sure. And I, I'm, I'm actually going to take this as an opportunity to partially answer a question you didn't ask, but I think it's very related, which is that we have to we have to look at what of the negative externalities of that kind of approach to counterterrorism been in the past. So we don't have to completely guess what it's going to look like. Uh, the reason that I actually got involved in content moderation at all was from a digital rights perspective. And the reason I got involved in digital rights is because I'm Syrian American. And, you know, after 9-11, I immediately saw how surveillance was impacting my community. And I saw how counterterrorism was impacting the community. And it is very bizarre to have these conversations about content moderation and countering terrorism as if we are in a vacuum where counterterrorism has not facilitated incredible human rights abuses, including in the United States. I'm very glad that the United States is a member of the Christchurch call now. But that doesn't mean that when I'm in meetings with the United States, I'm not going to remind the United States of the massive human rights abuses that have been carried out on Arab, Muslim, Middle Eastern and South Asian people in this country, that unlawful surveillance, FBI harassment, you know, FBI infiltrators showing up at mosques, uh, trying to convince people to engage in violence and and entrapping young Muslim men with mental health issues or or financial issues into into committing attacks. You know, we cannot try to challenge terrorism without looking at the history of abuses that have been committed in the name of doing so. I've already seen that take place in the physical world, and I've seen it take place 
from a surveillance perspective, and I cannot abide that taking place in the content moderation world. It cannot be acceptable that the human rights of Muslims and Arabs for many, many years now, it's been considered acceptable to, oops, you know, we accidentally left someone at Guantanamo. Oops, you know, we were accidentally surveilling this entire mosque. And now, oops, we're accidentally deleting all the documentation of the conflict from Syria. So that was my very roundabout way to get to the answer to the question you actually asked, which is what is going to happen if you, you just delete as much content as possible? Well, first and foremost, as Mnemonic has seen from our own archives, you are going to delete massive quantities of documentation of human rights abuses in conflict zones, including, and I think this is really important to, to point out, conflict zones in the Middle East. So content, particularly mnemonic has three archives. We have the Sudanese archive, the Yemeni archive, and the Syrian archive. And from all of those archives, we have seen content get improperly deleted as supposedly being terrorist and violent extremist content. And we know that because we have two methods that we're using. So first of all, we compare what is left. Once we find a video, we archive it. And so we're able to take our collection and compare it as to what's still available. So we have a collection of videos we've gotten from YouTube. We're able to collect, check those links and see have they are they now unavailable. Um, so we're doing a, a quantitative analysis in that way, comparing from our own collections, what from our own collections is still online and we're able to give percentages that way. And then the other thing is we hear from people who posted those videos or in general from our community, yeah, my content got taken down and I think it was for this reason. So you're actually obstructing opportunities for justice in these conflict zones. And, you know, if you want to think about what are the on, uh, underlying causes of terrorism, violent extremism, ongoing conflicts are definitely one of them. So, I mean, I genuinely believe that the work that Syrian Archive, Yemeni Archive, Sudanese Archive is doing to achieve justice for these human rights abuses is something that can actually address one of the root causes of terrorism and violent extremism in our society as people who feel they have no route to justice, no avenue to justice. So I think it's I think it's truly, truly harmful. And we know just from an objective standpoint, it's harmful to that documentation. And this is, you know, the type of documentation that can actually be used in court. It can be used by the UN. We're seeing more and more cases in places that have universal jurisdiction to try to try these war crimes. But but we're not going to be able to do that if all of that content is deleted before anybody ever sees it. So human rights documentation, and then the other thing I'd already mentioned, we see a lot of counter speech get taken down. So for example, during the, the wave of protests in Beirut, we saw counter speech against Hezbollah get taken down. Counter speech is one of the most important tools to counter radicalization and deal with terrorism and violent extremism. And it's not going to work if you have algorithms that, that are just poorly trained, biased, and are just deleting everything. So the impacts are already very real. We're, we've already documented them, and I only expect them to get worse, particularly if you know we keep seeing these initiatives to try to use automation and to try to just delete as much content as possible. And ultimately, I think it really is harmful if we're really trying to address these problems, if we're not just trying to delete the content, which is what you can see, I think that we're we're going to fail if we don't have real solutions instead of just saying, oh, we, you know, it's a real big problem. Obviously, terrorism is is a real big problem. We're just going to do whatever we can to delete this content. I mean, that's very much putting a Band-Aid on a big gaping wound. Why is it that you think that the the conversations that so many people are having right now about extremism in the right wing context so often seem to kind of memory hole the last 20 years of, you know, post 9-11 efforts by the government to, you know, what what they would call terrorism prevention, right, surveillance, which has really ended up, as you said, infringing on the rights of Muslim communities in the United States and around the world. It seems like so much of that, this conversation, at least in the United States, just kind of emerged, you know, fully grown like Athena from the head of Zeus, and that there's a, a weird absence of grappling with what's happened over the last 20 years. Not not exclusively, obviously, you know, a group people who worked in that space have been very, very loud about this. But really, the public conversation there, you know, there's a real willingness on the part of a lot of people to say, like, Proud Boys, you know, designate them, right? Surveil them. Who cares? Let's let's just get rid of them. What do you think is it that is kind of wiping the past from the conversation? 
I think that there's a lot of reasons, but I'll say two. One is that, frankly, the fact is that the the people who are calling for the Proud Boys to be designated terrorists, I, I don't know that they necessarily have been working very close with Muslim communities in their life. When you see people in the Christchurch Call Advisory Network, so we, we have, uh, as I mentioned, a few members in the advisory network who are Muslim, who um, some of them had friends and family who were in the Christchurch attack. You know, there's a much, much more nuanced conversation there. But when the policy conversation is is led by people who don't have any association with that and 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 haven't worked in that field and and they're not they're not being constantly reminded, I think that's one of the difficulties is that just it's just a disconnect. Although I have to say one of the things I find very bizarre is that it's some of the same people in these conversations who worked on surveillance. 10 or 15 years ago. But unfortunately, that brings me to the second point, which is that even if you think back to the conversations that were happening around the Patriot Act renewal, I don't know how how much you were focused on that at the time, but a lot of that conversation, a lot of the conversation in the US has focused on mass surveillance. And what is the opposite of mass surveillance? It's targeted surveillance. So over and over again, I actually saw advocates in the US essentially kind of throw Muslims under the bus and just say, well, we don't want mass surveillance. The NSA spying is bad, but we're not going to speak out about the surveillance of mosques. We're not going to speak out about, you know, license plate readers placed around every Muslim neighborhood in New York. Those feel like, I don't know, maybe they're not digital rights focused enough or something. I'm not really certain, but I think it's that, you know, the left on the, in the U S and globally has always had a little bit of a difficulty in dealing with how they organize and understand Muslims and the Muslim community. So I think that's part of the problem too, is just who is in these discussions, who's leading the discussions. You see very, very, very few people, for example, with a hijab in any of these discussions. So I think it's just who's in the room. I'm a little bit of a, of a, of a ringer because I'm Syrian, but nobody thinks of me as Arab. So I'm able to bring, bring it up and, and have it be a little bit of a surprise. But other than that, you know, I think I think that that's those two reasons. It's just it's it's difficult, and people don't want to have to don't want to have to think about it really. Covert infiltration operation. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah>. Exactly. <laughs> Good work. I mean, I think the just delete dynamic that you mentioned before is so interesting. I think, again, it's a great manifestation of the issues around content moderation more generally, or a really good example of it. There's sort of this conception where if you just delete the content, the problems will go away, right? Like, oh, we can't see it anymore, therefore it's not there. But of course, deleting a video does not solve the societal issues that led to the video being created in the first place. Um, And so getting rid of the content might solve a tech company's headaches and it might feel like governments get to show that they're doing things and sort of tick off some, some KPIs or something, but it might not necessarily be the most effective way of, of tackling the problems for all of the reasons that you mentioned. I think counter-extremism efforts are such a great example of this because there's a lot more sort of research about those efforts over the years. But of course, a lot of it is equivocal and we don't really know what works best yet. Although one of the obvious things that we could do here is get more access to data from the tech companies for independent researchers to know what is working and sort of all of the measures that they're taking around redirecting people away from extremist content and not just deleting it. Uh, It would be great to know more about the success of those efforts and, and sort of research into what we can do other than just delete it so that we can disappear the problem, even if it doesn't get solved. I wonder if We could go back to something you mentioned earlier, given it's sort of been a focus for you in the last little while, which is the situation unfolding in Palestine. I think it's obviously related to the conversation that we've been having today and sort of maybe the mess that tech companies have been making there. But of course, um, governments are hardly blameless. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about sort of the role of of tech companies and content moderation and, and governments in that situation right now. Sure. So unfortunately, right now in in Palestine, the role of tech companies is one of just deleting things. Like, frankly, um, what we are seeing right now is content moderation on a scale that I have not seen before. And I have been doing this work. I, I guess I started doing platform accountability work in 2014 around the Facebook real names policy. 
So I guess by by the standards of content moderation, I'm I'm old school. And I, I have never seen this level of content removal and suppression. So what we're seeing right now from Palestine is just people's posting privileges being suspended, um, hashtags being suppressed, just people who have a huge number of followers looking at their engagement and seeing that they're not getting engagement. So shadow banning and even, you know, the type of content that that people are not able to post is absolutely not. Some of the content violate the policies. Yes. You know, nobody's arguing that. But the type of type of content that that I've just seen just from people, you know, sharing what they're not able to post. A lot of it is not even borderline whatsoever. Also, celebrities have been speaking out uh, about this. So Bella Hadid in particular, and they've also had their posting privileges in one way or another. They're not able to post. They're not able to repost. So I've just never seen on this scale this much suppression of content. And unfortunately, we know that Facebook in particular has a very close relationship with the government of Israel. They they actually publicized that they that they met with the government. They've also, you know, just been been. This is not the first time that that we've heard this. The the Israeli government has many times commented, you know, if we want if we want to get something taken down, we can get something taken down. All we have to do is reach out to our contacts at Facebook and people on the on the Palestinian side feel really powerless. You know, for example, Facebook already met with um, Israeli minister Benny Gantz. It, it's, you know, what is what is the voice for Palestinians? And I think one of the difficulties also is that obviously the Palestinian government itself also is not necessarily the most helpful. There's different factions, <laughs> different ideas of, of what should be allowed. So it's really up to civil society in, in this case to try to ensure that people's content is just not getting deleted en masse. And then the other thing on top of all of that, so Palestinians' content just and accounts just removed at an astounding rate. Two other things to keep in mind. One is that a lot of this is actually people live streaming as they have soldiers you know, outside of their house. They're they're live streaming and they're trying to live stream to protect their own safety. They're trying to connect with global audience and saying like, I'm live streaming this right now. Oh, look, there's soldiers, they're coming. Those live streams are getting stopped, which I think is just, just truly criminal. And then the third thing to keep in mind is that there is a ton of misinformation circulating right now. So there's misinformation circulating that is specifically intended to try to create violence, saying, oh, you know, there's a group of uh, 50 Palestinian men who are coming to your village to attack you. So that type of misinformation. But there's also official misinformation from the Israeli government that is being shared and being amplified through the IDF account and through other official channels on Twitter and Facebook. And I, I certainly don't see those platforms taking any action yet. I mean, really, there are posts that should have been labeled at this point that haven't been labeled. So, you know, it's really just a mess. It's really a mess. And it was very bizarre sitting in the summit on Friday and having this conversation, knowing that as we were speaking, content, documentation of human rights abuses that the ICC has said that they are, are investigating was being deleted as I spoke, as I was sitting here with, with world leaders talking about terrorism and violent extremism. So I want to dig in a little more to your work at Mnemonic because it, it I think it touches on a lot of these questions about archiving human rights abuses. So the the mnemonic grew out of the work with the Syrian archive, and I think it's a, a good way to dig into, you know, this fact that there there is a problem of how to deal with evidence of human rights abuses online. Um it seems like this sort of struggle is just going to be an ongoing feature of the the new information ecosystem. So tell us a little bit more about the organization's work, how we should think about this kind of content and what work needs to be done by tech companies and policymakers to Help make your job easier. So as you mentioned, Mnemonic grew out of the Syrian Archive project. And Syrian Archive was established in 2014 by a Syrian. It started just as a rapid response project. We saw that a lot of content that was being posted, images, videos, and, and text postings, they were in these sort of ephemeral online spaces. And we wanted to make sure that, that those were saved. So um, started archiving that content and then created a whole process for how to verify content and ensure that it is actually what it says it is. 
when you have a conflict like the the conflict in Syria, which uh, we always like to say there are definitely more hours of video than there are hours of the conflict. So when you're dealing with such massive quantities, you know, it, it is all too easy to see a, a video and have it labeled something and that's not actually what it is. So um, not only preserving content, but also verifying it. And then finally putting it into databases of specific types of incidents or specific locations so that it is really accessible and ready to use. So started as just Syria, and then we established the Yemeni and Sudanese archives, working with people, working with local organizations as well, and people on the ground. And, and now we are, we have those three archives and we're continuing to work on them, but we're also just trying to share those skills. So share the, share the skills of how to archive, you know, how to verify, and then also on my end, doing this work around content moderation and policy. And, and, and you know, it's something that has become really increasingly important. We've, we've sort of found ourselves in the middle of this conversation as one of the few examples where there's actually any way to monitor the takedowns, you know, without having something that you can compare against, you really, it's hard to tell what proportion of content is getting taken down. So we, since we have our archives, we're actually able to use them to, to compare and see those takedown numbers. So the policy piece is, is my piece of it. At the same time, of course, we are still archiving. Um, we're doing a lot of rapid response now where there's just some, some situation and a lot of content needs to be quickly preserved. And we're also continuing to work on technology development, which is less my wheelhouse, but one of the pieces of technology that we're working on is object recognition to make it easier to find you know, specific weaponry and things like that. So I want to take us back a little bit to some of the themes that we started with around civil society engagement. I think probably a fair characterization of your approach in this conversation would be like pragmatic. I feel safe to say, and it's it sort of, I really sympathize. That's an approach that I have also taken in my own work. And for example, where I've, I've spoken about the GIF CT, I tend to think that something like that is probably an inevitable and, and, you know, on balance beneficial part of the future of the internet, you know, especially in the way that it can help smaller platforms who don't have the resources or technology of the larger platforms to combat these problems and, and violent extremism, but they, they have all of the same concerns and, and measures like this and arrangements like this can help them tackle those problems. But for all of the reasons that we've talked about today, they're deeply imperfect and there are deep problems with them and, and can be very worrying uh, from a freedom of expression concerns to the complete lack of accountability and visibility into these arrangements. And so trying to walk that middle line between sort of recognizing their utility while also recognizing the sort of Orwellian aspects of them um, can be difficult and it can sort of mean that you get slammed by by both sides. And I think one of the sort of interesting things here is the level of civil society engagement and where civil society has decided to engage. So, you know, you talked about the efforts that you had to go to to get in the room on the on the Christchurch call. And I think when it comes to the GIF-CT, a lot more of civil society has sat that process out. And I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit, well, first of all, if that's a fair characterization, and second, you know, talk about the, the strategies of advocacy and what makes participation in one initiative attractive and, and that you perceive as beneficial and why strategically certain other initiatives, it might not be best to take that approach. <laughs> well, uh, I will say that I'm, I'm almost certainly the wrong person to be answering this question because I'm very <laughs> involved in both the GIFCT and the Christchurch call. So I'm, I'm on two of the GIFCT working groups. And have also just really consistently as part of the Christchurch Call Advisory Network and prior to that, I have, I've engaged with GIFCT as much as I possibly could. So Evelyn, as you'll remember, we were both featured in the multi-stakeholder forum last year, which was a first. I mean, GIFCT had not had civil society interventions in their meetings like that. So that being said, it's a little bit of a mess, honestly. You know, it's, it's GIFCT, Christchurch Call. There was also at the same time, there was this parallel process going on with OECD, where they were working on uh, transparency reporting standards for takedown of terrorist and violent extremist content. There's also regional and national legislation. So the, the EU terrorist content online regulation, which just passed. There's also online harms legislation being introduced in multiple countries. So New Zealand has this online harms legislation. 
The UK has its online harms legislation. So it's just a lot. It's a little bit of a mess. And actually, I have to say that's one of my goals in my role as one of the co-chairs of the advisory network is to ensure that we are really clear on what the different functions of these different spaces are and that we, over the next year, actually outline that and make it as public as possible too. Because I think one of the things that happens in these really wonky discussions is that you know, someone from the outside and uh, Evelyn, again, you and I, we've been really deep in the wonkiness of this, but trying to explain any of this to someone, you know, even over the course of this podcast, we had to, we had to do a lot of work. <laughs> I hope that, that listeners feel that they understand it, but it's a high bar for engagement. So I think a lot of work needs to be done to make it easier. Um, I think increased resourcing for the GIFCT is going to help because they have more staff people and they have more people who are dedicated to engaging with outside stakeholders and things like that. But in terms of where to be the most impactful, I think that depends on the person and what their strengths are. Um, so for me, you know, I've engaged being part of the advisory network means inherently that I'm going to find myself dealing with heads of state and doing, frankly, a lot of political work. That's really what a lot of the advisory network has to do. I think GIFCT with the GIFCT working groups. I think that's been more focused on, uh, you know, either trying to gather information or or make recommendations. So it's a little bit of a of a different feel. So I think choosing where to plug in and and how figuring out how all of these things overlap is is helpful. And it's something that individual people shouldn't have to do. It's work that needs to be done by GiveCT particularly by the staff people now, by the Christchurch call, especially the, the supporting governments, New Zealand and France, and also to a certain extent by the, the advisory network. We're going to do what we can to make it a little bit more clear for people. So before we let you go, I want to ask, what's something that you wish policymakers knew or were more aware of when talking about and working on these issues? Is there anything that we haven't covered that you think is important to sort of place in the foreground in these conversations? I mean, I guess I'll say two things. One is, is something we have already talked about, but I wish that policymakers knew a little bit about what has actually happened in the past with counterterrorism. What are the, the negative impacts of counterterrorism work and how is it played out for real people? These are not hypothetical concerns that we have to, you know, just throw in at the end of the conversation to be worried about. We're talking about real people and real lives and real experiences. And I think policymakers need to understand that. And frankly, I think that every one of them should listen to somebody talking about what it looks like when their rights are violated. Many years ago, over a decade ago, in my organizing with the Arab Muslim Middle Eastern South Asian community here in San Francisco, we had a San Francisco Human Rights Commission where people from the community just came up and spoke for hours about the experiences they'd had with their rights being violated in the name of counterterrorism. So I think policymakers should just watch that video or something equivalent so that they have just an inkling of what are the real risks. So that's one thing. And then the second thing is actually more of an attitude adjustment, which is that I really want policymakers, when they're coming to meet with civil society, to understand that we do actually want to address this problem, that for example, people in the advisory network are genuinely concerned about the ability for people to post human rights documentation. We're also genuinely concerned about the potential for, you know, copycat shooters to be inspired by a live stream video of an attack. We care about both of those things and we don't see them as an insurmountable divide. It's just a lot more work to craft solutions that don't have uh, uh, negative externalities. So those are the two things that I really wish all policymakers would know when they're talking to civil society and when they're working on this. And that's why I'm part of the conversation. I'm going to bring those things to the table. Uh, I'm going to reiterate them at every chance that I get, because I think our work needs to have a solid foundation as we address this really incredibly challenging issue. I think that's a really great place to leave it. I think it really sort of embodies that pragmatic approach that you're you're taking. And I just want to take the opportunity as well to thank you for all of your work and, and advocacy in these areas. It's it's such an important one. And it sounds like you could use a rest. So I hope you have some, <laughs> some days off uh, ahead of you. So thanks very much, Dia, for the conversation. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, 
and we'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Ian Enright, and our producer is Jen Pachia Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening. <laughs>